Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. We have Patrick on the phone because we wanted to do some quick takeaways here from the Boston Marathon as well. We wanted to, to, to leave you with something to listen to while Boston was still fresh on everybody's mind here. And Patrick, of course, did Boston. Congrats, man. Thanks. It's always a fun race. Tell us about it. Uh, did it go well? Did it go not so well? It seemed like it went pretty well from where we were watching from, you know, from my seat. Absolutely, yeah. So it was a, a, certainly a fun race. The weather was fantastic. It was certainly much better than in previous years. I mean, last year was <laughs> particularly kind of like last the rain. Year. <laughs> and, yeah. Last year you were running into the wind um, with a lot of rain and a lot of cold. And then years before that, it was actually pretty warm. Mm-hmm. So this year it, it seemed to be kind of just right there in the middle where it was sunny, a little warm, but not too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just kind of how Boston is. I mean, the, the day before it was a cold, rainy, and cloudy. And then the day of the race, really just for the three or four hours of the race, it was like nice and sunny. Um, yeah. But it's, that, it was Boston in a nutshell. I, I told my fiance when Pack is for Boston, I said, Pack as if it's going to be 75 and 35 in the same day. Right. As, it certainly can be. <laughs> yeah. You know, we talked about that with Rochelle on Rochelle's race recap or race report podcast last week. She was talking about, and we were talking about how the weather had been forecasted to be similar to what it was last year. And then we wake up mm-hmm. on marathon morning and it's clear and 61 degrees. Um, now, we should say you started in wave one at 10.02, right? Correct. Yeah. And so then wave and two, I, and, and, go ahead. And I'll say, too, when we woke up, it was still pretty cold and rainy hmm. the whole time we were, like, walking to the bus and on the bus and kind of waiting in Athlete Village. And then it cleared up, like, around 9 o'clock or so or 8.30. Yeah, just in so time. <laughs> it, that's right. So it, it looked like it was going to be another cold race, but then the, the, the skies kind of parted or the, the clouds parted, and it got hmm. pretty sunny and um, nice for everybody, for the actual race itself. Yeah, yeah. So so you started in Wave 1 at 10.02. Wave two started at ten twenty-five. Wave three started at ten fifty. Wave st- four started at eleven fifteen. Um, and so by the time wave four started, you were almost at the halfway mark. Um, and so, so yeah, it was it was interesting to talk to Rochelle about how hot it actually got. Um, and as I mentioned mm-hmm. last week, there was another athlete that I coached who she didn't quite reach her goal, and she said, you know, it's because it was too hot. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah, it, it, it ultimately ended up getting pretty hot there for folks uh, in the tail end, which is not something that really anybody was expecting. Yeah, and, and to your point, too, um, it, it certainly wasn't perfect weather. You know, it, it's funny. I let off by saying yeah. it was the best weather we've had in a while, but mm-hmm. that, you know, just because it's been the best weather we've had in a while at Boston, that's not saying much. It's certainly right. still not DIM or Chicago weather. Right. Right, for sure, for sure. Well, very good. Congrats on another finish, and congrats on a on a Boston course PR for sure. Um, let's talk about some of the races. There was uh, kind of four races that I was tracking. So I was while 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 Patrick was was running it, and while Rochelle was running it, and while the all the other folks we know were running it, uh, I was sitting watching it and and tracking it and all that sort of thing. Um, and there are four races that I basically watched, and three of them were kind of blowouts. Um, Daniel Romanchuk won the men's wheelchair race. He just kind of rode away from everybody and won it by a lot. Uh, youngest wheelchair winner they've had in uh, like 30 years, I want to say. Uh, he was the winner you probably saw, Patrick, from the of the, of the Peachy Road race last year. 
Um, and so he's been yep. making, making a lot of waves inside of the uh, the wheelchair racing world. Uh, another big blowout came from Manuela Shar in the uh, the women's wheelchair race. And so both of those races featured uh, uh, runners who just just kind of blew everybody away, just kind of built up this giant lead and never looked back. Manuela Shar won by like seven minutes over Tatiana McFadden, who's also a former Peachy Road Race winner and, and is no slouch. So, um, so yeah, really, really impressive uh, performances on their part. Um, and then, of course, we had uh, the women's race. And so we'll talk about that one first since it falls into the uh, the, the um, category of, of big blowouts. The winner of the women's race was Workanesh Degefa, and she ran 223.31. Um, Patrick, I know you watched it on the, uh, the replays. What did you see? Uh, I saw someone who just took it out from the get-go and never looked back. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's funny. When I finished the race, I asked, you know, the, the group of friends that, that had watched, you know, and were kind of cheering for me. And they said, we don't know what happened to the women, but one woman just took off. You know, yeah. they're like, almost like there was nobody else even in the race. Yeah. And then when I watched it on TV, it almost looked like a high school race where you have one runner that just blows away the pack from the get-go. Yeah. So, so it so. was pretty spectacular to watch. For sure. Now, working as Degefa, let's let's be clear. She's not some slouch. She's actually the fourth fastest marathoner of all time. Um, she she ran two seventeen in the Dubai Marathon last year, and so she's super fast. Um, it's not like she came out of nowhere, but she's never run Boston before. She didn't preview the Boston course, and so she goes rushing to the lead about four miles into the race, and I and a lot of other people that were watching. We're just thinking, okay, this is yet another person who's just kind of blowing it at Boston and is going to go too fast during the downhills and is going to fall apart in the Newton Hills and Heartbreak Hills is going to kill her and everybody's going to catch her. I mean, that's really what most of us thought. Um, and be honest, like, I would think that in any marathon. <laughs> like, anytime you see in any major marathon somebody just running away from the field at the four mile mark, you're like, yeah, no, that's not going to last, you know? Um, right. And, and Dan, if she didn't make it last, man, I mean, by the time she got to, uh, to 30 K, which is just getting into the Hills, it's just a little bit over 18 miles. She had a three minute lead. Um, now she got over the Hills and Edna Kiplagat, who's 39 years old, uh, former champion, Edna Kiplagat, she won in 2017. Edna Kiplagat ran the last 10k a lot faster than working Ashtagefa did um, and she ended up cutting her lead all the way down to 42 seconds but it was still I mean it was a done deal um Degefa, it was never really in doubt there after she got over the hills because she had such a gigantic lead um, and then American Jordan Hesse finished third finished on the podium in 22520 um Des Linden last year's champion ran 227 flat she finished fifth um, and then another American, Lindsey Flanagan, finished ninth in two thirty oh seven. Other thoughts about the women's race? Uh, two quick thoughts were number one, another strong showing for the American women, placing yeah. three in the top nine. Yeah. And then also, what does it say that Des Linden ran a two twenty seven this year and a two thirty nine the previous year? Right. I mean, it's it's. I mean, I don't know if you could say that the weather alone was worth the twelve minutes, but that's a pretty significant marker for. I mean, an athlete that only, you know, is running a two-hour marathon or so. It's For sure. 12 minutes. For sure. You know, uh, Yuki Kawauchi, and we'll talk more about the men's race here in just a second. Yuki Kawauchi ran 20 seconds faster than he did last year. Last year, his time won. This year, he finished 17th. <laughs> and so, he basically, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and what people said about Yuki Kawauchi last year when he won is that he's he's a 215 guy. 
and that's what he runs. And you put it in a blizzard, and he runs 215. And you put it in ideal conditions, and he runs 215. That's kind of what he does. Um, and and so things unfolded well for him last year. But yeah, I thought it was it was striking that he actually ran 20 seconds faster than he did last year, and and finished 17th place. So it was and and was never a factor in the race. Um, was was out yeah. of the at, was out of the picture in in by by 10k. So what was your other takeaway from the women's race? Uh, that was about all I had. Um, you know, it, and then of course it was good to see Deslin and get get a fifth place finish. Um, yeah. You know, whenever someone has a in any sport, whenever someone kind of has a an upset victory like that, it's mm-hmm. also oftentimes hard to follow up with a with a strong showing. But she certainly did. Yeah. I was glad to see that too, and I think the people in Boston were glad to see that as well. Um, you know, Boston Marathon really venerates its former champions and it invites them back a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so she spent a lot of time, and she actually said this afterwards. She spent a lot of time leading up to the Boston Marathon um, in a lot of press uh, activities and and a lot of like former champion panels and all that sort of thing. And she said that was a little bit draining. Um, but at the same time, she is very proud of her victory last year, and and she sees herself now as a permanent part of the Boston Marathon community, and I think that's pretty cool. And, and mind you, she had already finished second several years ago, um, but just kind of goes to show the difference between second and first. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. I, I thought that was cool too. I thought that was cool too. Um, so yeah, Jordan Hesse, um Jordan Hesse ran the fastest ever debut for an American woman when she ran Boston. Uh, in 2017 Um, and then she was injured pretty much all throughout 2018 um, and had to scratch out of a couple of races scratch out of um, Boston last year scratch out of Chicago in the fall Uh, and so it was also kind of good to see Jordan Hesse come back and have a really strong finish uh, with that third place finish there as well so congrats to her too yeah, it's, and especially when you consider that 2017 race, uh, that 2017 Boston was not a fast race. That was a pretty warm day. So when she had put in that time, that was really a strong showing. It really showed that she was you know, someone to look out for moving forward. Yeah, she's the real deal. Um, and clearly, working as DeGafa is the real deal, too. So so congrats to all of them. Very good. Um, let's talk about the, uh, the, the men's race. Um, so the men's race, uh, was, uh, the one of the four races that we've talked about that was not a blowout. And in fact, it could not have been really any closer. Um, the, uh, the, the men's race, uh, they just like most of the, most races, the, the pack kind of got dwindled down and, and, and whittled down and whittled down and whittled down until ultimately you had three guys that were all kind of running together, Lawrence Toronto, Lalisa DeCisa and Kenneth Kipkamoy. Um, and all three of them took that left turn onto Boylston street together um, they were effectively side by side by side with about 600 meters to go. And of course, you know, me and everybody else who were sitting there watching it were all fired up. Um, they all begin, you know, kicking it in. Uh, Kenneth Kipkamoy gets dropped from, from, from the two of them. And then Lawrence Toronto and Elise DeCisa are running side by side and neck and neck literally until the last five meters of the race. Um, Lawrence Toronto uh, ends up just barely getting in front of Elisa DeCisa, and and in the official results, Lawrence Toronto runs runs two oh seven fifty eight, and Elisa DeCisa runs two oh eight flat. So there's a two second difference there. It was far far closer than that. 
Um, with about five meters to go, Lalisa de Sisa realized that he's beaten, and he effectively stopped with about five meters to go and walked about the last five meters of the race. And that's the two-second difference there. Um, but if they would have taken the time with five meters to go, they, they were a split second apart. Um, they would have been on the same time. Um, it was profoundly close. And it's it's kind of incredible, too, you know, um, and then, Patrick, I know you watch the highlights, too, so I'm going to let you talk here in a second. But <laughs> but it's kind of incredible, too. When you see people sprinting like that at the end of a marathon, it looks so different than when you see people sprinting at the end of a 10,000 meters on the track or a 1,500 on the track or a 5,000 meters on the track um, because they're both so deep in uh, and they're both so tired. With about 50 meters to go, Lisa DeCisa literally kind of lost control of his arms. He almost kind of threw him out. And it looked for an instant as if he was almost trying to like hold back Lawrence Toronto. I think he just cramped in his arms and he was just sort of throwing his arms out trying to, to uncramp and, and, uh, and to, to loosen back out again. So, yeah, it was an extremely gutsy finish by both of them. And Lawrence Toronto won by the, the thinnest of margins possible. Um, what do you think? Yeah, you made a great point. Um, in, in watching a final sprint in a marathon, even in the elite, it just looks different than it does in like a 1500 because their stride is still so compromised because their muscles yeah. and joints are just so beat up. Yeah. They, I mean, it does, like when you watch like a 1500 meter, you know, final sprint, it almost looks like a running back running down, you know, field for a touchdown. Like it's a, yeah, really they, is just a dead sprint. They look beautiful. Um, <laughs> Right. I mean, it, it looks aesthetically pleasing, but <laughs> with the marathon, it really is just a suffer fest to the end. Yeah. And I got to say, when I was watching it too, I, I actually was thinking, man, I don't know how in the world these human beings are sprinting this fast and, and still looking that good at the end of a marathon. Right. Um, so that was quite impressive. Super and then impressive. my other takeaway, just being a runner, I literally finished the race and Someone gave me a phone to watch the finish, like, you know, 20, 30 minutes after I finished. You were that, on TV the finishing the race. I, I saw you I, I saw you on the coverage finishing the race. You finished right next to a push assist team, and they decided to show them on the screen. And there it is, Patrick and his blue ITL singlet. I was fired up, man. Anyway, keep going. That That's right. <laughs> and um, I, I've had so many people text me screenshots of that. It's been pretty cool. <laughs> but I remember – Standing at the finish line, like with my apple and, and chocolate milk, and, and watching you know those two sprint to the finish, and I just remember thinking, man, I hope I never have to sprint to the finish <laughs> at the end of a marathon. Right? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the, the incredible thing about it, though, is kind of what we were just talking about: is that Lawrence Toronto is is I mean, he's now the winner. Now, Lisa De Cesar, we should say, he's a two-time Boston champion himself. Um, and so, so he, he won in 2013 and 2015, he won the bombing year in 2013. And then of course, everybody knows that Mev Kofleski won in 2014. Uh, and then he came back yep. and won again in 2015. Um, plus Lisa DeCisa, we talked about him last fall because he's the one who won the New York city marathon when it was so close. He was the one who pulled off his hat and threw it down like a baller in the last mile of New York city. And he passed Jeffrey Cam Rohrer and then, and then ran away. But um, he almost got caught by Shura Katata in the last 400 meters of of, uh, of New York. And so he's also been on the winning side of one of these final sprints to the finish of, of the World Marathon Major. So so lest we think of Lisa DeCisa as this perennial second or all oh, poor Lisa DeCisa getting out sprinted. He's been the one out sprinting before and he stood atop the Boston Marathon podium as well. So uh, I think he's great. I think he's a great runner. And, and, and uh, yeah, but anyway... Um, 
Lawrence Toronto, speaking of their their accolades, Lawrence Toronto has won Honolulu a couple of times. He's won Rotterdam a couple of times. Um, he's run 10 marathons, and he's been first or second in nine of them. Um, the only marathon that he's run where he wasn't first or second was where it was last year at London. He finished seventh. And if you recall, London last year was the race where they went out in under 14 minutes for the first 5K. They went out in an insane pace, like way ahead of, of, of world record pace. And he went out on that pace and, and paid a price for it. And so he finished merely seventh that day. But in every other marathon he's done, he's finished first or second. Um, and now he's a Boston champion. So, so good for him. Um, one other thing, kind of talking about winning, uh, Lawrence Chirono, the difference between his payday and Kenneth Kip Kamoy's payday. Now, like I said, remember, they turned on to Boylston together. Um, so they, they, with 600 meters to go, they were together. But because Lawrence Girona was able to win the sprint to the finish and Kenneth Kipkamoy merely finished third, uh, Lawrence Girona got a $110,000 payday higher than Kenneth Kipkamoy. <laughs> so that was a pretty, uh, pretty lucrative sprint for him. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that he's probably going to command a much higher appearance fee if he comes back to Boston in the future. So, so, so good for him. Good for him. Other, yeah, that's right. Other, other thoughts about the men's race? Uh, not really. Um, we, I mean, the Americans, and you probably touched on this, yeah. had a few folks that, um, put in a good enough time to qualify for the Olympic trials, which yeah. that's always good. The more, you know, strong runners we can have in the trials, the, the stronger the field will be and the stronger our reps will be. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, agreed, agreed. So, so yeah, we had a couple of really strong, uh, finishes from, from, uh, uh, men runners, men Americans, male Americans. Scott Fobble finished seventh in 20909. Uh, and Scott Fobble's PR before this was 212. Um, and so this is a big mm-hmm. PR for him. Um, his, his Strava, it was funny, said, did that really just happen? Um, which I thought was great because, and it reflected all the disbelief he had in the post-race interview, uh, which reminds me, by the way, uh, the post-race interviewer said to Des Linden, what's next for Des Linden? And Des Linden said lunch, which I thought was funny too. But anyway, um, so yeah, Scott Fobble finishes seventh in 209.09. Jared Ward finished eighth in 209.28, also a PR for him. Uh, in the post-race interview, they, they, they asked Jared Ward, they said, what do you think about that? And he said, you know, I'm really psyched. I've always, I, I've been wanting to run under 210 for a while. And the interviewer says, why have you wanted to run under 210? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, because I feel like I'm capable, and because, and then he kind of paused for a second because, and also because 209 just sounds cooler than 210, <laughs> which I agree with. Um, but uh, but yeah, so he ends up finishing eighth, which means, as you said, that means they uh, they are now double qualified for the Olympics, if you will. Um, they have both now met that 211.30 time standard, and by virtue of finishing in the top 10. Um, at a world marathon major, they now are qualified for the Olympic trials. Um, same thing can be said for Jordan Hesse and Des Linden, who both made it on time and by finishing the top 10. And then Lindsay Flanagan, even though she was about 30 or 40 seconds behind the, the uh, time standard by finishing ninth, she is now qualified for the Olympics as well. Um, so that's good news. That, that we have a few people who have now met those standards that are kind of nebulous and, and as we talked about before, a little bit controversial. But um, Scott Fobble uh, said it was a magical day. Like I said, Jared Ward, uh, he ran in the Dunkin' Donuts Sauconies. 
which I thought I got a kick out of. Uh, both of them at various times uh, were leading the race. Jared Ward led it through uh, through Wellesley and was putting his hands to his ears and trying to hype up the uh, the Wellesley students there as he was running through. So that was kind of fun to watch. But uh, both of them basically said that they could tell that it was a good day and it was a day they both felt good. The weather was right. Um, and so when the pack started to slow down, they didn't want it to slow down. And so they went to the front and kind of kept the pace honest, which I think is great. What do you think? Uh, just, I mean, mostly just what you said and what, what I touched on earlier, it's, it's always good to have more people meet that time standard. That way we can go into the trials with a bigger field and with a greater opportunity for somebody to emerge, you know, as a dark horse and, and take on that mantle of being a strong American representative at the trials and at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. you know, later down the road. So yeah. I thought it was a good day overall. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and back to the whole 210 thing, this is the first time that any American not named Galen Rupp had run under 210 since Meb Kofleski won the Boston Marathon in 208 back in 2014. So this is the first time mm-hmm. in five years that, that an American not named Galen Rupp had run under 210. Uh, but now Scott Fobble and Jared Ward are part of that sub-210 club, um, and they therefore have their Olympic trials qualifier. So I'm happy about that for them. I'm happy about that for the U.S. team. There's a few other wrinkles to the race I know that we want to talk about as well. What was one of the ones you wanted to mention? So while we're talking about Olympic you know, trial qualifiers, we can talk a little bit about Stephen Van Gamplemeer. So I don't it's know quite how to pronounce Van his name. Gamplier, I think it is. Stephen Van Gamplier. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he was an engineer from Colorado, and he actually, you know, as an amateur runner wearing bib number 143, ran a 2.18, you know, on his way to uh, putting the time to qualify for the Olympic marathon trial. Right on. Uh, you know, he started in wave one, corral one with, you know, hundreds of other folks. With you. And that, that's right. Um, and he ran negative splits, you know, on his way to qualifying. Right on. So, you know, he I think he put in, you know, his first half in 109, and then someone let him know. I think his coach or, or one of his spectators said, hey, you might have a chance to run Olympic qualifying time. He mm-hmm. did a PR by about four and a half minutes to get it in. So congrats to Stephen. Last year we had um, that woman who was, who was a nurse who, you know, ran very strong in Boston. I cannot remember Sarah, her name. Sarah Sellers. Point, but Sarah Sellers. Sarah Sellers, thank mm-hmm. you. And this year we have Steven. So it's yeah. pretty cool to see that somebody like him was able to run so fast. And um, I think he finished 26 overall. So he did actually pick off some of the elite men. Yeah, he beat about he beat about half the pros. So so let's say a couple quick things about that. First of all, Sarah Sellers, she finished second last year overall, which is you know behind Des Lennon, which was amazing. Um, Sarah Sellers actually was passed by Toronto DeCisa and Kip Kamoy right before they turned on to. Boylston, <laughs> and so that so they're showing the three of them, and then it's like, oh wait, there's Sarah Sellers. Anyway, back to the men's race. But uh, but um, anyway, um, yeah, he um, uh, as you just said, started in wave one, corral one, and you'll recall, I think we talked about this before um, during our our well, at some point we talked about it, but uh, Boston did change their rules this year. Um, You'll remember last year, the women's elite race, the women's pro race, effectively, uh, starts about 25 minutes before the men's pro race. Um, it starts at 9.35, and the, and the men's pro race started at 10. And it used to be that the men's pro race would start at the same time as wave one. Um, and what that men, meant, effectively, was that there was only, there was only about 40 women who were ultimately capable of winning the race, 
whereas there were 7,000 men who were potentially capable of winning the race. And so, um, and it became really, really thorny because there were some women who started in wave one who ended up running faster times than some of the elite women did, um, and, and it caused some, some real negative publicity. Now, we talked about it a little bit last year, I remember, but anyway, in order to, to, to address that, they actually did a separate pro-men start this year. Um, and so, as you mentioned, Stephen Glampier, um didn't start with the pro men. He started with wave one, which meant he started two minutes behind all the pros. Um, and so he effectively, I guess you could say, is the winner of the open race, right? If, 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 you, say that, if you say that the pro race or the elite men's race is a separate race now, and it is because it starts two minutes earlier, then he was the winner of the open race. Uh, so congrats to him for, for, for that um, and for, for being the winner of the open race. Now, he was a little bit bitter about it, actually. Uh, evidently, Stephen, even though this is his fifth straight Boston, he had not really done his research going in, and he started complaining about the separate start like three days before the race. Um, <laughs> and so, so um, which I thought was a little bit misplaced. But um, but nonetheless, um, uh, glad that he ran well. Glad that he catch, caught half the pros. Glad that he got his Olympic trials qualifying time. So um, we'll have to see what ends up happening uh, with him next year at the trials. Very good. Um, what were some other things you want to talk about? Uh, well, the second one we can talk about is friend of the pot, or I should say friend, but favorite of the podcast, Yuki Kawauchi. Yeah. Uh, speaking of moving from kind of an amateur runner to a professional, um, this was his first race as a professional runner at the yeah. ripe age of 32. <laughs> right um, yeah. So he actually held his first ever media conference. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he, and I think he, this might've been his first race running, you know, under ASIC, the ASIC sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, as you mentioned earlier, he ran Boston at the same time, just about the same time he wanted it in the previous year. And, you know, this year the weather was a lot better, so he, he certainly didn't win, but he was able to run with bid number one, which has to be pretty cool to run. That is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, a major race and where bid number one, you save that bid, no doubt about yeah. it. You don't throw that one away when you get done. Right. Um, and, and congrats to him for completing, let's see, I'm looking at my notes here. It looks like marathon number 88 under 220 yeah. for Yuki Kawuchi. Marathon number 88. So I'm, I'm glad you looked that up. I didn't look that up because, yeah, he's he's extending his record of, of, of most ever sub-220 marathons. So, yeah, very good. Mm-hmm. He's done 93 total. And mm-hmm. since winning Boston last year, he's run in one, two, three, four different marathons and 12 <laughs> half marathons. Right on. Half right on. All while still working his job, because like you said, he announced when he got home, when he got back to Japan. You remember last year, he announced, "Okay, I'm going pro," but first I got to yeah. finish this project at the school where I work. Well, evidently he didn't finish the project until like last month, and so so he was still <laughs> he was still working up until uh, up until yeah, like a week or so before the race. So I'm still interested to see. Okay, so we talked about this last year. Now he's a pro. Um, how is that going to change things for him? You know, is he going to, I mean, he's 32, so he still could be on an upper trajectory and he's run under 210. You know, his PR is under 210. Um, and so I will be interested to see how this changes things for him or if it changes things for him. Um, you know, I, yeah, I cause you got to imagine the expectations would be different because usually with yeah. pros, you pick one or two big events and you advertise for it and you're a big part of that race's advertisement campaign. And you really got to kind of blow out that one race, but that's not really his style. His yeah. style is kind of, 
steady Eddie. I mean, he's more of a two fifty hitter in baseball who just shows up each day and hits singles. Right. But in in running, that's not really what they're looking for when they they make the big sponsorship. They're looking for the big splash right. once or twice a year. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And so so is he going to change his approach? Now the other thing that I'm thinking about too is that. And this is a little bit more complicated with him, but you know, I'm I'm reading a book right now that, that that you read recently as well, and it was talking about how essentially the 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 real focus inside of endurance sports in general, but endurance sports in particular right now, is less about how to train harder and more about how to recover better, and that that that's yeah. kind of that's kind of what's in style right now, and and any pro will tell you that the biggest difference between being pro and not being pro is recovery. That, that you spend so much time being mm-hmm. able to recover as a pro. And sometimes that's like kind of weird. You know, remember Nicole DiMercurio last year talked about how she got to take a nap in the afternoon and initially she wasn't really accustomed to taking naps in the afternoon, you know? Um, and so that, that, was, that was an adjustment for her. And so now he is going to have time to recover more and to focus more on recovery. But it's so weird with him because he races so much, it's like he's never in a full state of recovery. Do you know what I mean? And he, he performs in not a full state of recovery, and that's just sort of how he rolls. And so is he going to start focusing more on recovery now? And like you said, doing fewer races, I just that doesn't that not only doesn't seem like his brand, but it also just doesn't seem like his his, his MO. Um Yeah, I wonder how he'll react to that mentally or emotionally. Right. I mean everybody's different, but I imagine if he was, you know, holding down a job, and it sounds like he was pretty, you know, respectable in his job, and you know, really kind of carrying his weight, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and you know, like most of our listeners, we all have to, to hold down jobs, all of us have family responsibilities in addition to training, and so we're almost geared from, you know, early on that you have every minute of the day you should be doing something, you yeah. should be achieving something, you should be working towards a goal, and you know, don't sit down, you know. Uh, there's a you know there's a saying, "I'll sleep when I die," so to speak. Yeah. Um. But he also probably turn that switch off. Or first of all, I'm assuming he has that switch. He's had to develop that switch to be <laughs> as great of a runner as he is while working a, you know, full time professional job. But now he's got to almost turn that off. And I, I could just say personally, that would be hard. Yeah, I would have a very hard time all of a yeah. sudden placing value on sitting still. And he's and he's 32. You know, I mean, it's it's one thing for like Nicole to try and turn that switch off when she's 22, but he's 32. He has a pretty well established life at this point, right? And he he has, he has mm-hmm. a way of going about his business, and so it's 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 hard to imagine him making that transition. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, I think about it like myself, and I think you might say the same thing. Um, you know, I did my first Ironman back in 2011 while I was finishing up my dissertation um, and while I was defending for my PhD and coaching cross-country and teaching and working full-time. And there's like two or three other things as well. I was like super busy. Um, it, these days, like if I take a day off from training, I'm like, ah, and I, and, I, and I eat whatever I want and stuff. I mean, like everything falls off with just a single day off. Do you know what I mean? I tend to perform better when I just don't take time off, when I just could sort of put my head down and do everything I have to do. And mm-hmm. I, I sense, just based on his racing schedule and the fact that he didn't go pro until last week, I, I sense that he's probably the same way, but we'll see. yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. So I mean, I'm glad you brought him up. I'm glad you brought him up, and I sir, I, I I do want I like Yuki Kawauchi a lot. But okay, so that brings another wrinkle. I like Yuki Kawauchi so much because he does all this stuff, and I want to see him be successful again at a on a really big level. But let's say that he takes the next year, focuses entirely on 
the New York City Marathon of 2020 and and does really, really well there. And let's say he finishes on the podium in New York City. I'd be happy for him, but at the same time, I wonder whether I would be as fired up about it because he wouldn't have done all the crazy stuff between now and then. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it kind of takes away a little bit of the everyman element yeah. from his storyline. Right. Yeah, exactly. So... So we'll see. Glad you brought him up. Speaking of every man element, or I guess every man runner, uh, you might have seen Jimmy Johnson, which we shouldn't say that Jimmy Johnson, the NASCAR driver, is an every man because he's not. Um, he uh, he finished in 309, um, and it was actually his mm-hmm. first marathon. Um, he he did a, uh, a NASCAR event on Saturday, uh, a 400-mile NASCAR event on Saturday, uh, traveled to Boston on Sunday, picked up his number, towed the line on Monday morning on Patriots Day, uh, and was hoping to break three hours, but ran 3:09, and was he said he was happy with it. First marathon, um, he uh, had some. He's done several half marathons. This is his first marathon, so so congrats to Jimmy Johnson and those of you who are fans of NASCAR. Um, you know, next time you try and get an autograph from him, maybe he'll sign it. Jimmy Johnson 309. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, um, other other kind of quick stories. Uh, you have other quick stories. I have two more. Okay, uh, I have a longer one. You do All your right. quick one first. All right, so I'll do a quick one, even though it might become long because I, I don't spend nearly enough time bragging on one of my favorite runners, and that's Joan Benoit Samuelson. Um, Joan Benoit Samuelson, yep. recall, um, she was the winner of the first ever women's Olympic marathon in 1984. Um, and she was one of the world's, obviously one of the world's best marathoners in the late 1970s and 1980s. Um, and, uh, she ran really, really close to 220. I think her PR is, is 221. Um, but she was part of a, a, a crop of, of, uh, global runners at that point who were trying to become the first woman to, to run under 220. Um, she won the Boston Marathon in 1979 when she was a student at Bowdoin College, and she actually wore her singlet from Bowdoin College uh, in the race itself. And she ran 2:36 um, because she had not really quite fully bloomed into the runner that she would ultimately become. Uh, but that was good enough to win the Boston Marathon in, in 1979. She's now 61 years old, uh, and before the race, she kind of said her stated goal was 40 years after. I want to try and run 40 minutes or within 40 minutes of my time. So 40 minutes would have been 216 or three, uh, pardon me, 316. Um, and she ran 304 at age 61. <laughs> I mean, take a minute. 304. She basically ran seven minute pace. She ran faster than Jimmy Johnson, obviously, but 304 at age 61. I, I hope I can run 304 at age 61. I mean, that's just amazing. Um, it's incredible. Um, and, uh, she, uh, some people pointed out that if you use like the, the age grading scale, um, which can be used, uh, for all sorts of masters championships around the, around the world, she actually was the winner of the age graded race. Um, uh, that time 304 at age 61 is equal to a 219 in your prime. Um, and so, so yeah, a super, super impressive, uh, race there from Joan Benoit Samuelson. Um, yeah, great stuff. What else? I I guess I almost find that more inspirational than her two thirty six. Yeah, uh, just the the fact that somebody can age that well and kind of keep the sport they love in their life for that long yeah. and stay fit. I mean, that is almost more impressive because the, the longer you live, the more chances there are for something to go wrong. Not to sound too morbid, mm-hmm. but I mean, the fact that she's still running and she also seemed to be enjoying it. I mean, yeah. When when you saw her coming to the finish line, you saw the video. She seemed like someone who was. I mean, I'm sure that there was 
some serious fatigue involved, obviously. Mm-hmm. But it, it, she certainly looked like someone who was having as good a time as you can have while finishing up a marathon. Yeah. So big time kudos to her. I agree. I think it's cool too that that somebody who's been doing as long as she have is still trying to run hard. Do you know what I mean? Because Mm -hmm. there's part of me too that says, I mean, there's a part of me personally where where I say, well, I've been doing this for 25 years. Uh, Maybe I should, and and I've been thinking a lot over the course of the past year about, you know, sustainability um, in my running career. And there's a part of me that kind of thinks, well, maybe I should shift over to just sort of running for fitness and quit trying to compete and quit trying to go fast and all that sort of thing, you know? And, you know, she's at age 61. I'm sure she doesn't, I mean, I'm sure she doesn't go out and run hard every day. Obviously not. Nobody does. But, but, but she's still towing the line of a race saying, I want to run the best I can possibly run on this day. Um, and I think that's cool after 40 years that she's still doing that. It makes me feel like I'm not, you know, if I'm still doing that in, uh, after 40 years of running, um, that I'm not going to, I'm not going to be weird for doing that. You know, that that's, that there, there's some, there's some value in that. There's some honor in that. Um, I think it's very cool. I agree. With it, it's also beautiful that there are people out there that can, they can stay fresh and enjoy and have that mindset yeah. for 40 years. Yeah. I mean, that to me is such a beautiful part about this sport is we can continue to keep trying to be a better version of ourselves every day. Right on. Um, it, it's such a simple sport, but it's one that can last for a long time. Right on. Yeah. Right on. Agreed. Agreed. What's your next one? I got one more. I got one more short one, and then we'll. But um, I'll go ahead and do my short one, and then we'll, we'll end with yours. My my short one was to say that Workinesh Degefa is sponsored by Adidas and was not wearing Vaporflies. <laughs> oh no! That would explain why she wasn't wearing Vaporflies. So, so, so she was uh, she was wearing Adidas Adios, uh, which is what Haile Geber Selassie used to run in back in the day. And so, so plenty of uh, of, of brilliant runners have, have have worn Adidas in the in the past. Um, Scott Fobble was wearing the Hoka Carbon Rockets, um, and so he ran two oh nine, ran a big PR, not wearing Vaporflies. Jared Ward, I already mentioned, was wearing the uh, the Dunkin' Donuts. Um, version of the uh Saucony racers um i think i think they're kenvaras um but uh he uh uh was not wearing vapor flies either now chirono de Sisa and kip kamoy were all wearing vapor flies kip Legat and hesse were both wearing vapor flies um and so five out of six people on the on the the, the podium were wearing vapor flies but the women's winner working ashtagefa notably was not um now i'll say the 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 newest version of the vapor ply did you see this by the way i think i actually put an article about it on your on your facebook wall um, that that the newest version of the vapor flies are going to be some of them were 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 field tested in the boston marathon and then Elliot kitchogi and mo farah are going to be wearing some of them this weekend in the Bo- in the london marathon which by the time we air this they will have already done that and then they're actually going on sale the newest version of them are going on sale on monday via the nike app um, and they're a cool two hundred seventy-five, uh, five, uh, two hundred seventy-five dollars. Um, they're being referred to as the next percent, right? Not the five percent because they don't necessarily get you five percent more efficient, but the next percent, the the Nike Vaporfly next percent. Um, yeah. Huh. Uh, so, but I but I will say this. So so for those of us who who are all up on the Vaporflies, um, Edna Kiplagat was wearing the Vaporflies. And she closed down Workinesh Degefa a lot in that last 10K. And recall that the vapor flies, because they make you more efficient, they they essentially keep you from slowing down. Edna Kiplagat, 39 years old, 2017 champion, did not slow down as much as Workinesh Degefa did in the last 10K. So, mm-hmm. stands to reason 
that even though the Vaporflies didn't win on this day, it was still a win for the shoes in terms of, of who had the fastest finish. Um, and it stands to reason that maybe if Workinesh Degefa was wearing them, she wouldn't have slowed down and, and as much as she did and would have run 222 or 221. Yeah, who knows? Very interesting. I didn't notice that. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Um, all right, what's your last word? All right, my uh, final story or final note is about a runner named Marco Chesto. Mm-hmm. Or Chesito, excuse me. So let me tell you a little bit about him. His is a bit of a long-winded story. He is a double amputee who ran his second-ever marathon uh, in Boston mm-hmm. um, this past week. Okay, so let me tell you a little about him. So he came to the United States from Kenya in 2008 on a, on a track scholarship and ran for the University of Alaska. So we went from Kenya to Alaska, <laughs> so quite a big temperature change or environment change for him. Yeah. Um, he was an unbelievable runner. He earned All-American honors on the track, which is incredibly impressive. He was one of the fastest athletes in his school's history. And um, during his senior year, his cousin and teammate unexpectedly died by suicide. Hmm. And this is about 2011-2012. So in a state of grief, Jacito um, took some antidepressants and went out for a run on a trail near his university in Alaska. Well, we don't really know exactly what happened, but search and rescue teams you know, looked for him for several days before he finally stumbled into a hotel lobby, um, you know, uh, let's see, roughly 55 hours after he went missing. And I'm mm-hmm. pulling this from a, a Runner's World article. Mm-hmm. So while he was missing, temperatures dropped just in the single digits, and it snowed more than a feet, and his shoes were actually frozen to his feet. Like, that's how close he was, to, or that's how much, you know, damage there was done to his body. Mm-hmm. Um, so luckily he survived, but they were forced to amputate both of his feet about six inches below the knee, hmm. which is obviously a devastating procedure for anybody, but especially a talented runner such as him. Mm-hmm. So after the surgery, Chichito, he remained in Anchorage. Um, he went to graduate, and about three weeks after the amputation, he started to learn how to walk on the prosthetics, and he comes to the realization that, you know, hey, if I can walk, maybe I can run. Mm-hmm. And if you made fun, a few months later, he started to run very, very slowly, kind of learn how to kind of put one foot in front of the other, slowly but surely, started to run in some road races. And, of course, his times were nearly as fast as they were, you know, previously before the amputation. Um, he did kind of get better and better each year, you know, throughout, you know, his, his kind of post-amputation um, career. And then in Boston, he ran the fastest ever marathon ever documented by a double amputee, and he finished in a time of 2.42. Wow. So, unbelievable story. I remember seeing an ESPN documentary about him back in about 2010, 2011, because it really is shocking that he even survived, to be honest with you, much less that he, you know, even, you know, was able to run a marathon here 10 years later, roughly, or eight, nine years later. Mm-hmm. So, phenomenal story. I mean, he was someone I had totally forgotten about since I saw that documentary years ago. And then when I saw this story on Runners, I just thought, how impressive is this? Kudos to him. He's certainly somebody you could root for um, after all he's been through, you know, moving from Kenya to Alaska, then having his teammate die, and then having to get, you know, both of his legs amputated. So big time kudos to him. We talk about all the time about how runners can really overcome a lot and how, you know, the kind of the spirit of the marathon and the spirit of marathoners. This, I mean, it goes so far beyond anything that, that you know, that you usually hear about when, when talking about running a marathon or, or completing a race. So, yeah. big time congrats to him. I was super happy to see that he was able to complete his second ever marathon, and then he was able to, 
get this record after having such a promising career cut short. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and he was super close to the to the old record, as a matter of fact. Yeah, Mark Chisito, uh, Marco Chisito. Uh, he uh, his first marathon was actually just this past year at, at New York. Um, you know, he lost both of his feet in 2011, um, and and so it was about seven years before he was able to to pull it together and run his first marathon there, which. All things considered, that's pretty quick turnaround. I mean, really. Uh, yeah. R- r- ran his first marathon, the New York City Marathon, last year in 2018. Uh, ran 252, um, and then set his eyes on that record that you just mentioned, and then ran 242, of course, the other day. Um, he uh, he also in the in the meantime he became American citizen actually just a week before the uh, the 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 uh, New York City Marathon last year as well. Uh, he's 35 years old, and he's actually said that that his real big goal is to actually continue chopping off his time a lot such that he's ultimately able to run um, under 220 and and run alongside the the elites in in a major marathon um, and so yeah we'll see um, but yeah congrats to him world record holder right that's right world record holder right on right on very good um, well that's a nice note to end on I appreciate you bringing that up and I'm, I'm glad we got the opportunity to talk about it absolutely it's been a good day Right on, right on. Well, Patrick, congrats again. Thanks for coming together with me and and rehashing the uh, the Boston Marathon, both from the outsider's point of view, that would be me, and, of course, the insider's point of view, that would be you. So um, any final words? Yes. Uh, I got to say, the, you know, this past Boston, I got to run a, a course PR on a great day with great weather. The only thing better than running a course PR and running strong is to, to run that fast and see your friend and training partner pulling away from you the final 10K. Right on, so, right on. I have to say, that was great to see Tiago just blowing by me the, the final 10K. Excellent. Whenever you look at your watch and you know you're running strong and you get to see a friend running faster, it, it's a good feeling. Very cool. All right, everybody, we appreciate you joining us for our Boston recap here, and we'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. Once again, you can reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.